Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the failure of the mainstream press to acknowledge the real evidence before them presented by the January 6th committee as they continue to report on Trump and his cohorts as legitimate actors in a political drama instead of criminal outliers out to murder opponents and kill American democracy. Joining us is James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and author of the New York Times bestsellers State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for Maria Reyes' legal defense in the Philippines. We will discuss his latest article at The Intercept, The Cult of Donald Trump. On January the 6th, Trump was not much different from Jim Jones as he ordered his rabid followers to kill American democracy. Then, following the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit this weekend in Tampa, Florida, at which Trump's favorite congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, said, quote, We need to be the party of nationalism. I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. We will look into the growing influence of white Christian nationalism in the Republican Party. Joining us is Christian Cobes Dumay, a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She has written for The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. And her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Then finally, we'll look into the Pope's visit to Canada, where on Monday he said in apologizing for Canada's residential schools, 60% of which were run by the Catholic Church from the 1880s to the 1990s, Quote, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous people. I am deeply sorry, sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. Joining us is Link Kessler, an associate professor of First Nation Studies in English and formerly the director of the University of British Columbia's First Nation House of Learning, where he was also senior advisor to the university's president on Aboriginal affairs. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of the New York Times bestseller, State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA and in 2007 he was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund which has provided financial assistance for Maria Reza's legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article at The Intercept is The Cult of Donald Trump. On January the 6th, Trump 
was not so much different from Jim Jones as he urged his rabid followers to kill American democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Ryzen. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I must say, James, that I welcome your writing in as much as you, after seeing the last of the January 6th uh, Select Committee's hearings last Thursday, you wrote, let me just read the first paragraph of your article, The Cult of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a murderous cult leader who incited the mob that attacked the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th, 2021, hoping that his supporters would kill his own vice president, Mike Pence, and as many members of Congress as possible so that he could become a dictator. So that's not hyperbole. You're actually describing what happened, but it's not what politics reporters are reporting. So do you think we should replace politics reporters with crime reporters? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that um, I've really enjoyed at The Intercept, writing for The Intercept, is they let me uh, not only write what I want, but they let me write in plain English and tell the truth. And uh, I think it was, as you said, it's exactly what you could infer from watching the hearings, and especially the last hearing. That is is exactly the message of the hearing. And yet, most, as you say, most political reporters don't want to actually put it in such plain terms, which is unfortunate because I think we need some plain language to describe Donald Trump. He is He's a major threat to everything we believe in. Well, I mean, <laughs> what happened also, uh, short of them hanging Mike Pence and murdering Nancy Pelosi and all of the bloodthirsty things that they had intended to do, Pence escaped, uh, thanks to the Secret Service, to the basement garage of the Capitol, but he wouldn't get into the limo, and he told his Secret Service detail, it's not that I don't trust you guys, I don't trust the driver, and it turns out that there's every reason why he shouldn't trust the driver, that Trump's people, led by Tony Anato, the Deputy Chief of Staff, who still was with the Secret Service, and Tony Anato is the guy that suggested Trump hire the current head of the Secret Service, James Murray, who's also a Trumpster. These guys were going to kidnap him and as General Kellogg said, they're going to send him off to Alaska or somewhere to disappear him so that he he couldn't uh, certify Biden's victory and thus throw the thing into chaos and Trump, well, that would be Trump's last chance. That actually happened. That's a combination yeah. of gangsterism, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, and absolutely outrageous criminality. And yet I don't see too many people casting it in that context. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think um, the, the real danger right now to me is, is not only the, um, the mobs, but as you have just laid out, the extremists within the national security community who would be in positions of power the next time uh, there's something like this that happens. And the infiltration of right-wing extremists into not only the Secret Service, but the military, um, law enforcement, um, and the national security community is is really a major threat to the survival of democracy. And um, I think that the Justice Department has to 
um, really start investigating this in a way that it doesn't seem to be right now. Uh, you know, I think there's no doubt, there's no doubt that Donald Trump is a cult leader. Anybody who's ever watched cults or reported on them would describe him as a cult leader. And the idea that, you know, plain English like that is somehow unconventional journalism, I think is, is just wrong. And again, I'm speaking with James Risen, the national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of The New York Times bestseller, State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretaps by the NSA. And in 2007, he was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for Maria Reyes' legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article at The Intercept is The Cult of Donald Trump. On January the 6th, Trump was not much different from Jim Jones as he urged his rabid followers to kill American democracy. So Trump is coming back to Washington tomorrow, Tuesday, and he's going to give a speech before the America First Policy Institute, which has often been described as the White House in waiting. So... Not only is Trump planning a comeback, I'm not sure that he's going to announce that he's running for president tomorrow before this forum, but this forum are all of Trump's, the Trumpsters at the highest levels in the former government. Brooke Rollins, domestic policy advisor, Larry Kudlow, his economic advisor, Robert O'Brien, his national security advisor, Ivanka Trump, Kellyanne Conway, Russ Vought, etc. So they're... A, planning on a comeback in spite of everything that we've learned from the January the 6th. I mean, how, how, how do you... Yeah, think? I know. I think it's, that's, it makes it much more urgent that we continue this investigation as a country and that the Justice Department picks up where the House uh, has gone. I mean, I think the House investigation has been uh, really impressive. They've done a really good job of far beyond far more uh explosive hearings and investigations than i expected and i think it's had a major impact uh i think the so i think it's really damaged trump and i think he is uh he's really um the only reason i think he's thinking about announcing for a president this in the near future is because he wants to, you know, then claim that he's the victim of a political witch hunt with all the investigations underway against him. So I don't think it has anything. I think he's running from all the investigations. And I think that's, uh, I think there's plenty of Republicans who now see that and they're looking for somebody else um, to run. So, I think it's, you know, I just think uh, right now it's somebody has to recognize and start speaking out very clearly about what Trump really is. And um, so that's what I was trying to do. But that's what's come out through the cracks. It's been apparent since day one. And I've often said, right. you know, from the beginning of the Trump administration, if you could get a camera into the Oval Office, you'd be, be appalled and the scales would come off the eye of the American people to see this guy so out of his depth, so absolutely unhinged, such an amateur, such a fool, so ignorant, so impulsive, 
and so dangerous. And you start to get glimmers of that. But that's what they're covering up. And the idea that these people that worked for him are now coming back and trying to dignify him and trying to say, you know, we have policy. Well, all Trump cares about is his grudges and settling scores. But they're, you know. Well, these are just the these are just the losers, the same kind of losers who were around Hitler, uh, you know, in the late twenties and early thirties, uh, when um, you know Hitler was rising to power. You know, you've got the same kind of people. Kellyanne Conway is no different from Goebbels, um, you know, and um, Mark Meadows is kind of like uh, somebody like Goring. So it's just a bunch of fascist losers, and um, I think the sooner we just describe them as that, the better. People people are afraid to compare it to Nazi Germany, but I don't think I think we've run out of other comparisons, and I think that's all it is. They're just a bunch of Nazi thugs. And they've got a cult that uh, follows him around. And, I mean, if he does declare, I, mean, I don't know that he will declare tomorrow, because, again, apparently they're trying to get him to talk about policy, not his grievances and settling scores. And yeah, well, that sure. would never happen. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I, wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't handicap their chances on that. But that's the sort of notion now. He's not going to let anybody announce, right? His ego won't allow any any competition. So that's why he, along with the fact that he wants to stay out of jail and get whatever fig leaf of legal cover he can get from running as a president, thinking that maybe that'll give him some cover. But he's also, his other motive, of course, is as a grifter. He's the grifter-in-chief, so he'll be able to shake down his followers, won't he? So this is what seems to be going on here, is that, that he's going to preempt... To Sanders and others, because I think once he announces, what are they going to do? I think the main thing he cares about or fears is the Justice Department. And I think this is his only play to try to, you know, if the Justice Department uh, criminal investigation really ramps up, I think he's trying to, that's the only reason I think he's thinking about doing this so that he can try to convince the Justice Department to back off because he's a political candidate. But I don't think it has anything to do with anything else. He's just, you know, his his games are all so transparent. Um, he's got only a certain number of moves that he does over and over again. Every time he gets in trouble over the years, he announces something else. So, you know, it's just a, it's his go-to move. So, so, so does knows. it all, James, does it all go back to Roy Cohn's playbook? Is that, in other words, this yeah, is a sure. man yeah. who th- throughout his entire business career was one step ahead of the sheriff, and then throughout his political career yeah. been one step ahead of the sheriff. So, is Yeah, that I mean, a- I just, yes, of course, that's all this is. And, um, you know, he never expected to win the presidency. He expected to make a lot of money off running for president. And then when he got in and he was such a disaster that, you know, he kept constant turmoil all the time and chaos just so that he could, you know, distract attention from people. And, uh, you know, then when the pandemic hit 
things got even worse for him. So I just think it's just a, I, I really don't understand why anybody would support him, but I guess that's my problem. I don't understand cult members because all that's all these people are. They're cult members. Right, but they're a big chunk of the country. We don't even know what the numbers are. Yeah, well, that's the problem. There's a lot of uh, insane people in America right now. They're all insane. They're mentally ill, and I think that's the biggest problem we have right now in this country is the zombie-like crazy people who will do, who will follow Donald Trump. It's it's insane to me. And is there any way to diffuse it? Obviously, they seem impervious to information. I mean, they do have these propaganda organs like Fox News that are continually propagandizing lies and... Well, I think uh, there's been some interesting stories lately that the Murdochs are trying to get Trump to not run, uh, which I'll be interesting to see that they want him to step aside for DeSantis or somebody like that. Um, But, you know, it's it's a monster that they created, so... Right. No, I, I am. It's a very, it's a very uh, depressing outlook. But I just think you know you've got a major set. You know, as you said, a significant section of the country that is, um, in my opinion, insane. And I don't know what you do about them. They're racist, fascist, Christian nationalists who don't believe in democracy and they want to destroy the American Republic. They want and, a dictatorship. And they've been enabled up to now from people like the Murdochs who now... Yeah, to... there's always people who can who figure they can gain power from an autocrat. What they don't realize is that unless you're the autocrat or a member of his immediate family, they will always, he will always come around and screw you. You know, just look at the people around Saddam Hussein or Hitler. Right. You know, if you if you think that you're in with Donald Trump, all you got to do is look at the Night of the Long Knives and what Hitler did to Ernst Röhm. So, you know, I think the Nazi comparisons are the only ones we that make sense today. So, if the Murdochs are then uh, the Goebbels, uh, well, actually, the German equivalent of Murdoch, of course, was Alfred Hugenberg, who controlled enormous amount of the media. And his ex-wife, who he married when he was 17, ended up as Goebbels' wife. Uh, but eventually Goebbels took over all of his his holdings. But if, the, in terms of the comparisons here, if the Murdochs turn against Trump, which they're starting to do from the, the um, New York Post's editorial and the Wall Street Journal's editorials, uh, I don't think they can control Hannity or Tucker Carlson, can they? Well, they own Fox News. So I know, I but know. can they get those guys to suddenly start talking sense? I, I doubt that. I don't know. That'll be interesting. <laughs> I just think that... Uh, I don't know what to say other than um, it's plain as day right now that the man has got a... He's a psychopath and a cult leader. And there's a bunch of people who will follow him around and do anything he tells them to do. And you've got the 
video footage that the committee showed of the mob inside the Capitol reading his tweets. And they were following, they were doing exactly what he told them to do. And then when they finally said on television, please go home, they had video of people in the Capitol looking at their phone saying, he just told us we should go home. And so they started to go home. It's like, it's unbelievable. Well, and anybody who anybody who thinks there is anything more complicated than that is is trying to look for some, you know, something that isn't there. He is a cult leader. His people were he incited a mob to destroy American democracy, and he should be held accountable for that. Well, James Risen, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Sure. And again, I've been speaking with James Risen, who's a senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of the New York Times bestsellers State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretaps by the NSA. And in 2007, he was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for Maria Reza's legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article, The Intercept, is The Cult of Donald Trump. On January the 6th, Trump was not much different from Jim Jones as he urged his rabid followers to kill American democracy. We can take a brief station break and back look into the growing influence of white Christian nationalism in the Republican Party. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christian Cobes Dumay, who is a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She has written for The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. And the latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christian Cobes Dumay. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, there was a rally in Tampa, Florida, over the weekend of Turning Point USA Student Action Summit, it was called. And by the way, in front of the convention center in Tampa, there were Nazi uh, swastikas and SS flags and uh, mixed in with flags saying DeSantis country. And apparently the organization, Turning Point, repudiated the Nazis, but uh, so far, apparently, the governor has not said anything. But what went on inside uh, was, I think, probably just as alarming, where the representative from Georgia, the Republican uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, argued that Republicans should embrace Christian nationalism. She went on to say, we need to be a party of nationalism. I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. Um, so she's not exactly a particularly credible source in terms of the theology, I don't think. But 
is she speaking about something that is uh, some th- suggest a clear and present danger? I think she is. Now she she is somebody on the fringes. She's an extremist within the Republican Party. Uh, but I think a key question that we need to ask now and, and really over the last few years is what is the connection between the fringe and the mainstream, both within the Republican Party and within white Christianity more broadly? And that's where it gets a little tricky to discern, because, in fact, a lot of white American Christians do hold to Christian nationalism. They think that America is a Christian nation, that God blesses America when the country is obedient to God, and that Christian America needs to be defended against enemies external and internal. And these are widely held views. Now, the extent to which one takes them, uh, dissolving any separation between church and state, uh, kind of tossing aside our democratic norms and institutions, that's up for question. But broadly speaking, these are popular sentiments. And how do they compare to dominionists? I mean, for example, Senator Ted Cruz's father was a, a white Christian pastor who propagated the kind of idea that Jesus Christ should be the head of state. Mm-hmm. Dominionists think that kind of right-believing Christians, it's their duty to seize control of all, all aspects of society. So government, education, so the public school system, culture, and that it is it is their their god-given duty to bring each of these kind of mountains of culture of society into alignment with god's laws now, Christian nationalists may also be dominionists. Um, some Christian nationalists would not take things that extreme. And so uh, it, it gets very muddy because for a long time, dominionism was kind of um, a term that a lot of people um, who, who may have accepted the basic teachings didn't embrace. The same was actually true for Christian nationalism until recently. There are very few people who would have self-described as Christian nationalists. It's more a term that others would use, sociologists, for example, to describe a collection of beliefs or values. Now we see both of those shifting with people openly embracing dominionism and openly claiming to be Christian nationalists and saying, not only am I proud to be a Christian nationalist, but you all should be too. So there was a there's an article at CNN, uh, an imposter Christianity is threatening American democracy. And you're quoted uh, widely in the article, Kristen. And it's clearly, when you talk about Christianity in this country, the Christian, white Christian nationalism is largely in the evangelical arena. And Christianity, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but there are Catholics and Methodists and Presbyterians and Anglicans, etc. So there's a quite, quite a, a broad swath of religion. And I don't believe that these white Christians speak for Christianity in its broadest sense. So when you talk about the Constitution and we the people, what percentage of we the people are we talking about here? It's it's really hard to get a precise number on that. And first, I'll say that, yes, uh, Christian nationalism has a very strong foothold within white evangelicalism, but also within white Catholicism and in, into the white mainline as well. And uh, when we're talking about numbers, um, 
it's, you know, we're, we're, we're working with what we can glean from survey data. And there's different questions that different scholars put together to try to suss this out. But we're looking at, um, I don't know, between a, a quarter to maybe a, a half of um, white Christians who are going to hold to these views, some of them more extremely um, and would be termed ambassadors of Christian nationalism. This is from the work of Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry. Um, but then there's an, another group that would can be seen as accommodators. And so these are people who are not, these are not the Marjorie Taylor Greens or the Lauren Boberts out there in front, but these are more of your ordinary Christians in the pews who are sympathetic to their arguments, who have been taught now for generations in their churches and um, through Christian media that America is God's special nation. And the real question is, you know, how many of these folks are there? It's hard to get a number on. Um, and also, where will they draw the line between the kind of extremist representations that are very much anti-democratic and the more kind of general sentiment, but they will only take things so far. And that is a very open question right now. And again, I'm speaking with Kristen Cobes Dumay, who's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She has written for The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. And her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. But you argue that they're already having a profound effect within the clergy, inasmuch as white Christian nationalist beliefs have infiltrated the religious mainstream. And Christian conservative pastors who try to challenge this ideology risk their careers. Yes, in many cases, that's true. So this has been so deeply ingrained for generations now, even though it's getting a lot of media attention in in this moment. These basic beliefs that America is a Christian nation and that it's up to faithful Christians to really defend the um, the faithfulness of the country, that has been around for more than half a century in in very clear forms. And so what and it's and it's really become a, a popular movement and and a populist movement. Um, on the one hand, there are are powerful entities behind the scenes. You've got organizations like the Council for National Policy. You've got networks. You've got a lot of money behind this. On the other hand, it has been so thoroughly embraced at the popular level by generations of Christians now that if any one person, say a pastor is, is I mean, I, I hear from these pastors nearly every day. They write to me. I just got a letter a couple of days ago from a pastor who said, I was one of these people until suddenly there I was in church and I saw our 4th of July celebration. We had an American flag over the baptistry. And I thought, this is heresy. And when he tried to confront that, he didn't change the church. The church pushed him out, right? That's how this is working. And so it's it's very hard to turn the tide in any particular location. So how do you, you know, combat this? With How does mainstream religion, I mean, you would have thought that the Bible itself and the prophet Jesus uh, would be sufficient. He didn't hate homosexuals. He didn't carry an assault rifle. He didn't celebrate capital punishment, and so forth. And one of the mantras, of course, on white Christian right, amongst Christian, white Christian nationalists, is that this is a, it's a white Christian country. The founding fathers founded the country on that mm -hmm. basis. But of course, the founding fathers were atheists, Unitarians, deists, liberal Protestants. 
the spark of the revolution came from Tom Paine, who was a um, an atheist who famously said, belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. It's really hard to combat this um, just widely held belief because it's it's so infused the popular culture of evangelicalism and it's been reinforced for so long from so many places. And so you can, uh, you know, Christian historians have been working to challenge these false views of America's founding uh, in exactly the way you were presenting. Um, but their books don't sell nearly as many as the Christian historians who are perpetuating this mythology, right? Christian radio, Christian television, it's just infused with these teachings. And um, yes, you can look at particular Bible verses and Christians internally will have these debates among themselves. Um, but this is not a kind of uh, a equal fight in that in, in many white Christian denominations, the resistors are really in the minority. And this is where that language um, that was used in the CNN piece of imposter Christianity is um, somewhat problematic. Because on the one hand, that's perfectly fine to claim that this is not real Christianity as a theological argument, and Christians will have this debate among themselves. But as a historian, I have to say this is, in fact, a very real and powerful manifestation of American Christianity, and it has been for a very long time. So let's talk about this movement to white Christian nationalism and Donald Trump in as much as so much of the theology of white Christian nationalists is uh, based upon the Book of Revelation and so much of the fundraising that goes on. I've often wondered uh, why it is that there's such an investment in the end of the world and much of what is propagated by these preachers who seem to be entirely focused on the Book of Revelation is a kind of spiritual pornography because it means that, that people like me and everybody I know we have to die, die in the lake of fire. And, you know, it's our burning flesh that allows them to rapture up to heaven. So it's pretty aggressive, isn't it? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. you, and their idea of a leader, which I think Donald Trump to some extent fits the bill. You, you describe him as being refashioning Jesus into a kick butt savior. So let's talk a little bit about the vision of this kind of violent idea that only those chosen few are raptured up to heaven while the rest of us burn in the lake of fire. Yeah, I was I was raised in a conservative Christian community and not one that, that emphasized this uh, kind of apocalyptic vision very much at all, in fact. And um, so here, too, there are kind of competing versions of Christianity, even within American conservatism. And so the, the Christianity that I was taught focused much more on restoration and on bringing about human flourishing and this kind of peaceful vision of what the end times would look like. Um, so very much competing visions. When I was doing the research for Jesus and John Wayne, what I noticed is many of the writers in uh, who, who were who were perpetuating these these ideals of a very militant Christianity and a very militant Christian manhood to carry that out were 
not drawing on the Jesus of the Gospels much at all. They were explicitly rejecting teachings like turn the other cheek, saying you can't teach a boy to become a man by telling him to turn the other cheek. Uh, And they were saying that, you know, not in this time because the threat is so dire. And instead they would look to the book of Revelation because that's where they could get this martial kind of imagery. And that's where they could get the kind of justification for the sort of ruthless uh, seizing of power that they were already kind of, you know, planning to take part in. And so, you know, you can see this as both inspired by Christianity, or you can see the Bible essentially being proof texted and favorite passages just being plucked out that can justify their um, seizure of power. So is there any way to de-emphasize the book of Revelation, uh, which is pretty bizarre to begin with, and it's hard to follow, I should put it lightly, as opposed to the Gospel of St. Matthew and the Beatitudes? Right, the Beatitudes, such such a challenge to this this image. We could look also to the fruit of the Spirit. You know, what is the sign of of being a follower of Christ? These are things like, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Now, you know, this is in the Bibles that Christian nationalists are reading, and uh, and they're somehow able to just brush that aside. And they're, they're able to do so, again, by pointing to, but this is a crisis moment. And by conflating uh, essentially like true Christianity as they understand it, or faithful Christianity with worldly power. And so they are arguing that they need to control, uh, you know, our government or that they need to carve out a space for them to live out their faith as they believe they are required to live it out. Now, this is where we come into conflict with democratic norms and institutions, because Christian nationalism privileges Christianity. And so when they're talking about protecting freedom and rights, they're talking about protecting their own freedom, their own rights to live out their faith as they see fit, and to essentially invite slash coerce other Americans to abide by their rules. And so there is something fundamentally anti-democratic, both within this worldview, but also, I think more recently, in terms of strategy. Because we're also witnessing, and in fact, in the last decade, um, started to see the demographic evidence that we are, in fact, encountering the end of white Christian America, in the words of uh, Robert P. Jones. And that means that democratic measures will no longer be likely to achieve their ends. And so that's why we're seeing now, much more recently, a fairly widespread abandonment of democracy in certain corners of um, the Republican Party, uh, within American evangelicalism, uh, among Christian nationalists generally. Things like uh, you know uh, the Supreme Court appointments, uh, the gerrymandering, uh, voter suppression, and the Stop the Steal campaign, all of those are directly correlated with embrace of Christian nationalism. So just in the last minute then, uh, Kristen, we were talking earlier about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt. Uh, they are on the fringe, but they're increasingly becoming the face of the Republican Party, which is controlled by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So this is a big part of Donald Trump's coalition. And curiously enough, 
the one person who was brought into onto the ticket, Mike Pence, who brought in the Christian vote, Trump was perfectly happy to have him lynched. I mean, isn't that is that not getting through? <laughs> It doesn't seem to be. I have not seen much reaction at all on that uh, front among uh, Trump supporters, among Christian nationalists generally. It's shocking. But in fact, we there was evidence um, that, that should have pointed in this direction if we were looking years ago already in terms of many uh, conservative Christians were happy that Trump appointed Pence as vice president, but they much preferred Trump in the uh, Oval Office than Pence. And so during the impeachment uh, at that point, it was very clear that the vast majority of Trump's Christian supporters had a strong preference to keep Trump in office and not replace him with Mike Pence. Well, I thank you so much for joining us here today, Kristen Kobes Dume. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Kristen Cobes de May, who is a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She has written for the Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century and Religion and Politics, among other publications. And her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into the Pope's visit to Canada, where he apologized to the indigenous peoples, saying, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples. I'm deeply sorry, sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there, the laws to abide. And that the land that I live in has God on its side. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Link Kessler, an Associate Professor of First Nation Studies in English and formerly the Director of the University of British Columbia's First Nations House of Learning, where he also was Senior Advisor to the University's President on Aboriginal Affairs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Link Kessler. Oh, thanks. I'm uh, happy to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Link. And today in Alberta, Canada, Pope Francis said... I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous people. I am deeply sorry, sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. So uh, the Pope prayed at the cemetery in the site of uh, one of these residential schools run by the Catholic Church and then addressed a number of the indigenous peoples in that community in um, uh, in Alberta. So you yourself, I think, Link, are a, a victim of these schools, are you not? How well, far... uh, my, my, my mother was actually uh, a student at one of the similar schools in the United States, the Haskell Indian School, back in the 1920s. I see. So... But this is a, an area of your expertise. So. Yes, and, and it certainly uh, has been a feature of uh, my life and my family's history, without a doubt. 
So how do you feel about the apologies and how do you feel that the Indigenous First Nations communities in Canada feel about it? Well, um, personally, I, feel, I appreciate the fact that the Pope came to Canada to make this apology. I think that was uh, certainly a, a major effort on his part and made in uh, with the hope of uh, establishing a different framework for understanding that history and the church's role in it. I felt, however, that the I was a little not surprised, but I think a little disappointed that in the structure of the apology, it, w it was an apology for the actions of some people who did who did uh, terrible things. And that's a bit short of acknowledging the fact that this was the church that did these things, and it did a, it did these things for a, uh, a century. And uh, as with the government of Canada, there was uh, there were clearly matters of policy involved and intention in an institutional sense. So I don't think it is going quite far enough to acknowledge the the terrible deeds done by some people. I think there really needs to be. Uh, a little more forthright recognition that um, these were these were institutional decisions, and uh, they need to be understood that way. Uh, as you may have heard, uh, indigenous leaders were also calling for the Pope to uh, rescind the doctrine of discovery, which is about 500 years old uh, and was a papal pronouncement by a former Pope, and. People, I think, you know, in some respects, I think a lot of people would wonder why they, anyone would care about something that was that old. It was a foundational uh, justification for everything that happened in North America in terms of the dispossession of indigenous people uh, from their lands and uh, and institutions such as the residential schools that provided a, uh, a moral justification and it's rooted in notions of uh, of the supremacy of a certain way of believing uh, and of a certain version of the truth and uh, the evangelism of believing that uh, it's your it's uh, the duty of one group of people to um, totally change the lives of another group of people so I think the, the responsibility and, the, and all the difficulties involved in this history are, are very extensive, and uh, there will be, need to be more done to uh, set those things into a better framework. I, I do acknowledge that the Pope has done something very significant in coming um, to do this work, but I think there is more required. Uh, and. I think many people will be looking for additional uh, steps to be taken. Well, when the Pope said, I am deeply sorry, sorry for the ways in which regrettably many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples, he spoke in Spanish, and of course the Spanish conquistadors basically colonized all of South America Certainly. with that mentality. So the Pope seems to at least acknowledge that um... oh yeah no i think you know as i say i mean i, I think uh, he has done something quite significant in saying those, those kinds of things and what he said um, my point is simply that it, it's a bit short of acknowledging the extensiveness of the church's intentional actions and that the the these things were the policy 
of the church. Um, the, the papal statement of the doctrine of discovery was the announcement of a church position that has stood for centuries. And uh, from that, the church's position, many of these other things flow and, and are still, are, you know, they're still active. I think, I think he's quite sincere in, in, as, uh, in his actions as Pope as trying to reframe the way some of those kinds of decisions are made and uh, of encouraging a way of thinking in the Catholic Church that is a little less absolute and, and certainly a little less brutal in its implementation. But I don't think it's quite the same as acknowledging that there's there's something very fundamental that happened in all of this uh, and the, the ways in which it was um, intentional uh, remain and need further acknowledgement. And I think they, they're, I appreciate how far he has gone in reframing the mission of the church, but I still think that to really address this issue would require uh, some further steps. And again, I'm speaking with Link Kessler, an Associate Professor of First Nations Studies in English and formerly the Director of the University of British Columbia's First Nations House of Learning, where he also was Senior Advisor to the University President on Aboriginal Affairs. So from the 1880s to the 1990s, the Canadian government hired both the Catholic Church and other Protestant churches, but 60% of these residential schools were run by the Catholic Church, and they were all incredibly brutal. And they took 150,000 children away from their parents. And that, of course, is the cruelest part of all, that these kids didn't have any love and nurturing. And a lot of them could only speak their native languages like Cree, and they were basically beaten in submission never to speak their native languages again. And, of course, it's had terrible social ramifications for these children when they become adults. They're broken people, are they not? They are, and I think uh, the issue of language is, is critically important in terms of people preserving their culture, but it's also worth understanding that these many of these children were removed at a very young age from their communities and spent their entire childhood in the schools. And, and when they attempted to return to their communities, among other things, they had no way of communicating with uh, the elders in the communities who in uh, earlier times would have been their primary teachers uh, because they could no longer speak the language. And uh, they were uh, almost unrecognizable to people in the communities. And uh, often they were so traumatized and uh, their their personal circumstances were so dire that there was just no way for them to remain in the communities. And the result of that was they ended up in urban centers with no skills um, in societies which regarded them as disposable and uh, in which they lived very marginal and desperate lives and contributed to the stereotypes which many uh, people have in North America of indigenous people as uh, you know, totally dysfunctional by nature. And they are not that. They were produced uh, in that way by the system. And so the, the it's really the systemic nature of all of this is 
the thing that is most important to understand. And it's a, it's a really formidable history to understand, to fully understand. Well, a lot of the children, of course, did not survive these schools. Many died, thousands died, at least a thousand uh, unmarked graves that uh, ground-penetrating radar has found, right? Yes, and actually the first usage of ground-penetrating radar to discover such graves was in Oregon at the Chima site of the Chamawa Indian School, which actually, in, for the last at least uh, probably 70 years, has been a reasonably uh, functional educational institution, but in its earlier days was very much in keeping with uh, the rest of the system. Um, so that's a history which is shared across North America. And uh, I think in Canada, the, the really difficult parts of that history persisted much longer and uh, with much more support and complicity of successive Canadian uh, governments, uh, where reforms within the uh, Indian school system in the U.S. began uh, in the 30s and to very to greater or lesser degrees did produce change. But in Canada, not so much. And I think for those of us who are familiar with this history, um, it has been unbelievable to watch um, the Canada um, take such pride in its record, uh, international record for human rights at the same time this history has been unacknowledged. And actually, I had a uh, discussion um, encounter with a former, former governor general of Canada, who is a, a very decent person, uh, who was talking about um, the Canadian record in um, human rights. And it was right after we had um, toured a, a massive sculpture at UBC, a, a, what people would think of as a totem pole, which relates the Indian residential school history. And um, in that pole, there is a, uh, a section which is a carving of a residential school, and it's got um, copper uh, tacks in it, thousands of them that people have hammered in. And, you know, those of us who happened by during the carving you know, hammered many of those. Um, but each one represents a student who died in the school, in the school system. And we had talked about that. And, uh, you know, a short time later, he was talking about this human uh, human rights record of Canada. And I just thought it's, it's something to understand about the structure of our societies that these things seem to have existed for Canadians in, in two different zones of reality. They're like two different boxes in the national imagination. There's the one in which Canada does a lot of good things, and I'm, I'm very happy to be living here. It's a marvelous country uh, in so many respects. But at the same time, it's got this other area in which, in which these very dark things have occurred, and people until very recently have been completely ignorant of that and, and kept so by the actions of the government and the educational systems. Well, indeed, the government subcontracted these schools out to these churches, did they? And then when people complained to the government's First Nations, I don't think they called them that back then, but if you complained to the government bureaucracy, you got fired. 
Yeah, and you know there were. It wasn't just indigenous people who uh, attempted to bring uh, a light um, to those things. Um, there were government. There was a government commission uh, very early in the, I think, the nineteen early nineteen twenties, that produced a report documenting the abuses in the schools and documenting the um, persistent and systemic malnutrition of the students, um, and. That was tabled in uh, in Parliament, and nothing happened with it. So uh, there is no question that within you know, while the Canadian public knew very little about these schools and was told very little, uh, in governments uh, these things were known, and and the actions persisted. And that's why I'm saying, you know, with the government, it's very easy to document the systemic nature and the fact that it that the system was intentional in its effects um, and you know I think the the same is true of the church I, I there is no question that um, I think people understood what was happening um, and you know it's um, the um, complicity and colonization is part of it but the other part of it is that the the more abject a population becomes through such action, the more they require salvation. So, you know, there's a way in which even that is systemic in its implications. Well, has, just in closing, has the government uh, apologized now that the Pope has? Well, the government apologized actually some years ago. There was an apology in uh, Parliament, and it was actually under the former government, which is very conservative. Mm -hmm. um, and the apology was greeted uh, in various ways actually it was uh, it was quite ironic for me i was uh, didn't have a i was at work in my office and i didn't have a television to watch the apology and the only television that was available in the building was in the anthropological bone lab where they work with human remains so um, that's where i watched the apology in parliament um, the most interesting aspect of the apology in parliament was that uh, there was a group of indigenous leaders who uh, met with the prime minister before the apology. They were not told until they were walking into the the chamber of parliament that they would have the opportunity to respond after the apology was delivered. So they had they were not prepared to do that. Um, the last one who spoke, Bev Jacobs, uh, the, um, who was the president of the uh, Native Women's Association of Canada, she made a really good point, and she said uh, an apology after which the actions for which one is apologizing continue is a very limited form of apology indeed. So I think, uh, you know, people saw it as significant that this apology happened, but they weren't thinking that it solved anything. And certainly under that government, it did not solve much. So, uh, you know, it's a process. Uh, in Canada, people talk about reconciliation. And I don't like um, that as a framework for thinking about these things, because it kind of offers the possibility that at some point uh, everything will be okay, that it will all be reconciled. And I think it's, I think it's an unrealistic, it's an, it's an unrealistic goal. Uh, the goal, this is about a relationship. 
and a relationship that has uh, existed for hundreds of years and for uh, has been a very difficult relationship for many people. It's possible to have a better relationship. And it's possible to move things into something that is more functional for everybody, but for the country as a whole. And I think that's the goal. And that should be the goal in Canada. It should be the goal in the United States. There's there's ways of making the situation better. And maybe at some future point, people will look at it and say, well, we've done a lot of work. And I think we're, we're finally at a point where we can consider this uh, work that's been well done. But we're, we're a ways from that now. And it will take a lot of work to get there. Well, Lynn Kessel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Link Kessler, who's an associate professor of First Nations Studies in English and formerly the director of the University of British Columbia's First Nations House of Learning, where he was also senior advisor to the university's president on Aboriginal affairs. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice saying it's something to me One more light goes out in the